Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 119. This episode is a rebroadcast of an interview I did with Will Store several years ago in an episode just about belief. Now, that episode is about an hour and a half long, lots of segments. I just pulled out this interview, and I love this interview. I love this guest. I love this author. I love Will Store. He wrote a book called The Unpersuadables, in which he had adventures. He went and embedded himself with the groups of people and individuals who believe things that most people don't believe. And you'll hear all about it in a second. New episodes are coming up soon. The next episode is actually going to be the fourth installment of the Backfire Effect series. New stuff about the Backfire Effect I want you to hear about. And I wanted you to hear Will Store again because in an upcoming episode, we're going to talk about his latest book, Selfie, which is about narcissism and self-esteem and our current culture of having to keep up with personal brands, whether or not you're famous or you would like to be famous, or you're just a person that you know is doing things and all your friends and family are going to keep up with them. And he explores what that's doing to us as individuals, scientifically, our brains, our psychology, all that in an upcoming episode. So without any more introduction, this is Will Storr talking about his book, The Unpersuadables. Will, you spend, uh, in the book, you spend intimate time with young earth creationists, Holocaust deniers, homeopaths, um, people who send uh, people back through their past lives as other people and, and things like that. And I, I think many people look at those individuals and groups to which they belong as either being stupid or ignorant or crazy or under the influence of some kind of manipulation. And I don't think you agree with that. Uh, how do you see those sorts of people? Yeah, no, um, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that the, the, the kind of the first insight came to me actually sort of in the first chapter of the book, which deals with you know young Earth creationists. And I've been a journalist for you know getting on for fourteen, fifteen years now, and I've always been interested in people with kind of crazy beliefs. And um, it kind of hit me on that trip when I was with this guy John Mackay, who's this Australian. Um, man who's very influential in the kind of creationist scene, both in Australia, in the UK, and in the US. And, you know, um, he wasn't stupid. This wasn't a stupid man. Um, uh, I think one of the, one, one, you know, the, one of the moments I remember was, was actually, I first met him doing this big talk in this um, town hall, in this little town in kind of the remote north of Australia, which is a bit like 
perhaps the kind of Bible Belt of America. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he was selling all these, you know, religious items, but he was also selling like double DVD packs of debates that he, with scientists. And I'm like, you know, if this guy is debating scientists and then selling those debates <laughs> in yeah. DVD packs, he's obviously doing pretty well. And then that was kind of, that, that's weird, you know, he's behaving like somebody who's winning. And then I interviewed him and, you know, and it's just like, you know, he's not stupid. He's not crazy. He's living an orderly life. You know, he's not mad. He's not, on, uh, he's not in, you know, he's, he's a successful individual. So, you know, if he's not stupid and he's not mad, then what's the answer? Because this guy believes in some really extreme stuff. That, you know, the Earth is 6,000 years old. He believes in, you know, the literal existence of the devil. Uh, uh, you know, all of, these, all of these really extreme things. And yet, you know, and all the facts that, that he's constantly surrounded with, which kind of demonstrate these things aren't true, are completely, he's impervious to them. They don't have any effect on him. And I, you know, I sat down and I interviewed him with a big long list of, you know, basic scientific facts and, you know, simple questions of logic, like, you know, if God created the earth, um, you know, uh, if we are his only creation, then why did he bother creating out of space? You know, this doesn't make any sense. And his answer was like, oh, it's uh, so we can tell the time. And then another one was like, you know, if, if, if his idea, because he believes that in the literal Garden of Eden, which, because it was perfect, you have to believe that there was no, can, you know, no, nothing was carnivorous. Mm-hmm. There was no such thing as disease. Everything was kind of perfect and the weather was perfect. And I was like, if there were no carnivores, then why does the T-Rex have huge teeth? And the answer is, so they can eat watermelons. <laughs> you know, like these facts <laughs> were just not working on him. It was, you know, I, and so that, that to me is an interesting question. And suddenly it's a much more interesting exercise in kind of running around, you know, feeling superior and very pleased with yourself and pointing fingers again, you know, you're stupid, you're stupid, you're stupid, which is what a lot of people do. And actually they're not stupid. And once you kind of acknowledge that, suddenly you're in a much more interesting place as far as I'm concerned. And that's, and that's you know, why don't facts work on people? What's going on there? Okay, well, and you come back to that over and over again, and and the people who believe these ideas that, as you say, they're they're heretical to scientific consensus, and, and it isn't that they're unaware of the facts that inform everyone else's opinions. They know what we know, and they reject all of that, and they often see people who accept certain scientific facts actually as they're the rubes. And, but when you bring this point up, uh, you point towards yourself, and then, of course, it bleeds over into the reader, and you ask, how do I know that I'm right and that they're wrong? So in your mind, what, what does constitute an irrational belief? Oh, that's, I mean, that's a really good question. Uh, you know, what does constitute a rational belief? Um, it's very hard um, uh, for any individual to kind of categorically uh, and understand, you know, to, to kind of put, you know, separate my rational beliefs from my irrational beliefs. You know, there are lots of questions that kind of immediately come up in response to that. And I think one of the main ones is, you know, how did we come upon this belief? And I think one of the warning signs for me is emotion. Um, uh, a, a, a guy, a, new, a psychologist who you, you may be, I'm sure you're aware of, Professor Jonathan Haidt. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said to me, you know, if you, it's something along the lines of, I can't remember the exact quote, but it was basically, if you want to find irrationality, then look for the, the things that people make sacred. Look mm, for the, yeah. you know, and, and I read that as if to say, look for the things that they're really emotional about. You know, he said that, you know, although he, he believes in climate change, he's, he's not a climate skeptic, he doesn't believe, he doesn't trust the left 
to tell them the truth about climate change because they've made it like a sacred thing that, that you can't criticize. And, uh, and on the right, he doesn't trust the right to tell them about you know, the free market, the, you know, the ability of the invisible hand of the free market to do only good, have, have only good effects because that's sacred to their kind of sense of self. And, and how you can tell what's sacred to somebody is the things that they're emotional about. You know, if, if you go into an environment, if you, if you go into an environment full of people who are debating an issue extremely emotionally, then, you know, you're in a place of irrationality. And likewise, I think if you are considering ideas that make you very, very emotional and you can just feel those, you know, those hot kind of feelings and uh, rising in yourself, then you're in a place where you literally can't trust your own brain to tell you the truth about them mm-hmm. because it's that, it's that irrational part of your you know, um, brain working. I mean, we're speaking now in the context of uh, some really appalling events um, in the Gaza Strip. And I don't trust myself to kind of tweet about that particularly (laughs) or talk to anybody about that. Because when I think about what's going on in the Gaza Strip, I become so emotional, you know, that I just want to start shouting, Mm -hmm. you know, crying and things. And so that that tells me, you know, A, shut up about it in public (laughs) because you can't trust what you're thinking. You know, and well, and well, that's the B, really. You know, you, I, I don't trust my own brain to, 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 to think rationally on this matter. So it's one of these things I've kind of put aside from now <laughs> and I'm trying not to think about. So I think that's, I mean, that's the way to tell if you're, 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 you're in danger of being irrational about something. Right. And I mean, that's one of the things that, like, as reading your book, I was like, yes, oh my God, there's another, someone else found, got to the exact same place, which is after a lot of, after talking about this and researching it for so long, like um, you develop and just uh, let me tell me if this is true for you as well. You develop uh, a feel like a more mature sense of empathy, a more mature sense of humility. And then also um, it's it's made me a better user of social media because I tend to reach for the keyboard. Sometimes I even write out something about how much I don't like or disagree with something. And then I just <laughs> read it and then delete it and then move on throughout yeah. my day. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's, that's what it's like to be a real adult is to delete the thing that you were going to say. I absolutely agree. And, and actually I found that I don't use Twitter anywhere near as much as I probably should for my, you know, they're telewriters these days. You, know, you should be on Twitter all the time, but you know, I, I'm the same as you. Every time I reach for the, for, for, you know, for the, for Twitter and want to kind of, you know, get that get weirdly and ir- totally irrational human urge to kind of broadcast my views to the world as if it makes any difference whatsoever. I kind of stop myself. As I, you know, I think that that's a warning signal. If you're if you're feeling that strong about something that you just want to tell everybody what you think, <laughs> you know, I think you need to step back. And it is, and I think you mentioned the word empathy there too. And I think that's that's really crucial. And I think that's what's missing. Uh, in the conversation uh, that, that take place between you know amongst atheists, amongst rationalists, amongst skeptics, you know you don't see much empathy often uh, with people. They're very angry, and they're very quick to uh, point the finger at these religious people and whoever, and and, and sneer at them and and and, and um, kind of put them down. Mm-hmm. But I think, uh, uh, as you say, the more you understand about the psychology of belief, and the more you meet these people, uh, the more that empathy grows, and the more you under you know the more you realise that. Um, uh, you know, we don't get to choose the beliefs that are most precious to us. You know, I, I, I used to, when I was, you know, in my teens, 
growing up as a an atheist amongst Catholics, used to feel very superior because you know they were so stupid mm-hmm. believing in the Bible, and I was so clever because I didn't believe in this stuff. Mm-hmm. But of course, I've got no choice uh, on whether or not I believe in God. It just so happens that I don't. You know, I I, I couldn't decide suddenly to believe in God. I didn't make a rational, conscious decision to not believe in God. You know, the truth is that, that doesn't make me special. It just makes me a certain kind of person. And there are disadvantages in in, in not believing in, in God. I mean, you know, I mean, if you believe in God, you, you've got an invisible best friend, which I could do with a lot of the time. <laughs> you've got someone to make you feel um, better and forgive you when you've done something wrong. You've got paradise to look forward to. I mean, there are huge advantages. You know, it sounds like I'm being flippant, but really I'm not. I mean, there are uh, lots of studies which show that people with uh, supernatural beliefs like this, they're happier. They experience less stress. So, you know, you have to step back and ask yourself, Who's the smart one? <laughs> right. Uh, well, that um. So that brings that brings up something. Um, in your book, there's there's an argument that you present that I think might be difficult for some people to um, maybe not to grasp, but to embrace. And that is, you said that on one hand, you see science as as our greatest achievement, as a tool we invented to save us from ourselves, to keep us from thinking in the ways we naturally think. All those things like confabulation and biases and fallacies and motivated reasoning and all that stuff, arguing irrationally to protect those emotions that co- come bubbling up. But then you follow up with this um, by saying that you, you you believe that we should empathize with people who hold these fringe beliefs and that we should sort of celebrate their eccentricities and that um, madness that does no harm sort of provides a richness to life. And I really want to connect to that idea because it, it feels beautiful, but how how does one balance those two seemingly competing concepts? Well, I think we already do a pretty good job. Um, of balancing those concepts. And of course, this is an area of great tension. Um, so it's an imperfect uh, model that we have, but we have we have laws, you know, we have laws against hate speech. We've got, you know, if, if people are found to have denied their child um, conventional medicine and instead treated them with homeopathy and that child comes to harm, that parent goes to prison. You know, like we have laws in place to protect ourselves and people with um, irrational beliefs. Of course, you know, things like the anti-vaccination movement, you know, th- th- there are lots of areas where we could, uh, you could argue we could do with new laws and we could do with enforcing those laws uh, in a much more fierce manner. And I would embrace that idea. But the broader thing about people who have beliefs which don't negatively impact other people, I, you know, I, I absolutely, you know, in, I, I comp- really believe this idea that we do not want this terrible i mean okay i'll tell you a story i um in 2007 i did some i reported i spent a week in the world's largest refugee camp which is on the somalia to dab kenya border it's called the dab and it's where all the somalis have fled uh from the terrible war that's going on in their country and it's been around for like 30 years there are people in the dab who were born there and have only ever known life in a desert refugee camp. It's a really extraordinary place. And the vast majority of people living there are very orthodox Muslims. And uh, the experience I had there was one I just wasn't expecting. And, it, and, and um, you know, I was sort of talking to these people and hanging out with these people and getting their stories. And the impression I was left with was just this kind of, and this is the real damage to me of, uh, you know, very strict religion and very strict thought kind of concepts and that they seek to turn everybody into the same person mm. so everybody that i was there um uh, all i wanted really to talk about was the quran all the ones to talk about was religion somebody um called my uh, fiance at the time she said that she was a whore because she lived with me and we weren't married uh and you know 
uh, as lefty liberal as you want to be, that stuff gets to you. And, you know, and, and that to me, I really felt that strongly, this, the idea that, you know, this is, this is one of the great evils of religion mm-hmm. when it is, when it is for, enforced in a strict way, is that, you know, it gives you, it gives you, it gives you modes for living. These are, this is how you should dress. These are the things you should say. These are the things you should believe. But you can also see that existence in some of the people who, you know, vigorously fight for kind of a Richard Dawkins view of the world, and we should also we should be these rationalists, and we should only go where the evidence takes us, and all these other things. There's this, there's this, um, there's this uh, willingness there to have everybody conform to this very strict regime of belief and understanding and behavior and i just think that's catastrophic uh, for uh, humanity you know i i i spend my life as a journalist and uh, uh, meeting really extraordinary people uh, with a huge range of beliefs and i would hate there to be some magic wand, magic rationalist wand that you could wave that would turn everybody into a, you know, into a, 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 a person, the kind of person that might go to a James Randi conference. You know, and I, and I, and I think really, I, 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 I call eccentricity that, you know, the richest of our species in the book. And, and I, and I really do believe that, you know, some, some of these people who hold these unusual beliefs are kind of, I mean, you might not agree with what they, they think and what they say, but that, you know, they that that belief is part of their, you know, often part of a fascinating, sometimes amusing, sometimes challenging, um, colourful personality. And I would not want to kind of bleed that from the This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. And I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, Time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you. So you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S.
S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. I'm David McCraney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast, and this is the second half of our interview with Will Storr. Okay, but, uh, I know we're going we're to run out of time, and I just want to ask a couple quick questions here about, um, about religion, because I've never, ever talked about religion in my books, my podcasts, or anything at all, because I usually tend to I feel like what I talk about uh, addresses religion without having to talk about religion, although there is plenty of research into religion itself. But I'd like to get yeah. your view on it, because... Uh, your book is so much, deals so much with belief. Um, do you, uh, from your experience, do you see religion as being a different kind of belief from other beliefs, like people who believe they've been abducted by aliens or that um, 
that you know believe that they were John Lennon in a past life. Is it fair to lump religion in with that kind of belief, or do you see it as a different kind of belief? I think it's only different in the sense that it's much more deeply rooted and profound. It, it, um, you know, as I say in the book, you know, my idea about belief and, and my idea about irrationality is that we effectively all live our lives in story mode. You know, we're basically all playing David in the, in the story of David and Goliath on a daily basis. We're all the plucky hero struggling against great odds to live a better life. Now, uh, who we cast as the kind of uh, the villains in that story and who we cast as our allies, you know, bends and colors to an extraordinary degree the kinds of things we believe. You know, we're, we're essentially kind of tribal people. So people, uh, who, you know, if we're, if we're, if we're a skeptic and we, we're in the skeptic tribe and we hear people talking darkly about Rupert Sheldrake, we will be completely open to uh, accepting uncritically anything negative we hear about Rupert Sheldrake. Um, so, you know, so, so, so it's all about identity. And I think that religion is, 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 I think it's only kind of special in inverted commas because it, it is at such the deep root, it, it, affect, it, it affects your kind of hero narrative in such a profound way. Uh, you know, I just, it, it, it's, um, yeah, I, I guess I just, I just, I just feel that it's one of those, it's one of those, uh, you know, or, or, the, 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 it's hard to explain. The way the brain understands the world, you know, is, is in just incredibly intricate and networks of cause and effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, 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 that's basically it. And um, that belief in religion, the belief that everything you see is created by God, that he's basically the, ult- the original cause of it and he affects everything. It's so profound and it's so fundamental and it's so connects at the root of who somebody thinks they are and how they experience the world that I just think it's, you know, it is, it is uh, in a kind of facile way, uh, an irrational belief in the same way that somebody thinks they've just seen a UFO, but it's, it's just much more at, at the very roots of somebody's sense of self. Mm-hmm. If and that makes any sense at sure. all. Sure. Yeah, yeah. No, no I, I see. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I've noticed that people who aren't skeptical of things like Noah's Ark or parting the Red Sea, they, at least in my country, they they often seem to be the same people who are skeptical of whether Barack Obama was born in, in the United States or if vaccines are, yeah. they're also skeptical that vaccines don't cause autism. There seems to be a lot of overlap. I may not be being fair yeah. here, but there seems to be a lot of overlap between believing in something that seems fantastical with very little evidence while also at the same time, not believing in something that seems reasonable and supported by evidence. And it's like this balancing act of selective skepticism. What do you make of that? Well, I think it goes back to the chapter on politics. You know, I, I, I was really, I've always been curious because it seems like such a weird thing. What, why, there are these, the, why, the, why there are these clusters of belief on the left and on the right? You know, what, why, why might somebody uh, be critical of Israeli foreign policy and at the same time be up, you know, be supportive of higher taxes. You know, they, these things have nothing to do with each other, and yet you get these huge correlations between, you know, with the same people believe the same things. And so I dug deep down into that, and and what I found was um, that the 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 the, 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 the neuroscience of it is that well, the, the genetics of it is that um, they reckon there's around a thousand genes that influence whether we turn out left or right. And of course, obviously, genes are only part of that picture, but that. But, that, but, but there's around a thousand. And what those genes influence is, is how scared we are, how fearful we mm. are. So, some, so, and they think uh, that 
people on the right tend to be more more fearful in general. And if you follow that kind of logic through it, it makes sense. You know, so we, we're born with our brains in this kind of expectant state with a likelihood, you know, with a kind of more fearful state. And so we're going to be likely born in a family that shares that kind of makeup, who will kind of uh, bring us up with those beliefs. We will probably, if we're on the right, we'll live in the country because that's a bit less scary in a small community. It's not like the big city where there's so much, so you know, there's mm-hmm. so many other people and it, there's so there's so much going on. We'll read the right newspapers. We'll go to the certain schools. We'll go to church, and everything then will reinforce this kind of rightward, um, this rightward uh, drift. And so, so I think that's the way that you can see, like a certain kind of brain will light on certain kind of ideas if you if you dig down into fear you know that's the, the people who are fearful they, they they want to they don't like change they don't like novelty they're scared of it right they, so they like structure and order and hierarchy they like institutions like the army uh they like history and tradition because they don't like change i mean that's why they call them conservatives because they want to conserve everything mm-hmm. but the liberals on the other hand who do like change they want to kick down all the all the hierarchies they they what they, they live in the cities they like change they like novelty they like going out into the world and exploring uh, so, you know, I, I think that's the way that you can understand how kind of one personality trait and that fear can then kind of fan out and affect all these other beliefs. And I think it's the same with, you know, people who, like I hang out with those um, neo-Nazis. One of them was into his organic food and his anti-vaccination. <laughs> you know, I think, yeah, I think, if, I, I think my, I mean, I, I've not read any kind of studies on this, but my, my, my instinct on it um, fr- from what I've learned is that perhaps if you have, you know, if you are extremely fearful, you are paranoid, you are extremely mistrustful of authority, then, you know, uh, and and of the kind of the views of the orthodoxy, then it makes sense that you're going to be distrustful of what the orthodoxy say about the Holocaust and whether it really happened or not. Mm -hmm. You're going to be mistrustful about what the government tells you about vaccinations. You know, that kind of distrust can can bleed into all sorts of different areas. Yeah. And and it feels like, uh, you know, it makes total sense genetically. I mean, like there's a, the person who's willing to, I mean, you know, you, we all have recognized even like, you know, in a, in a pet, there's a, there, there, there are animals that are, um, standoffish and are hesitant and skittish. And there are those that just, that just approach, uh, approach humans when they really probably shouldn't do that. And, uh, and so we know that that genetically it makes sense that in human beings, there's a, there's a, there's a strain, there's a strain of us who are, open maybe when we shouldn't be and there are some of there are yeah. those of us who are skittish and in evolutionary speaking the skittish thing probably makes a lot more sense like uh yeah but civilization gives us the opportunity to be more open and i think that yeah. like that's why you see that that's why uh civilization progresses uh so often in the direction of people who are open to change but for that very reason that civilization is only possible because that that allows for the expression of that genetic profile at least that's my speculation so yeah yeah i mean yeah, i mean i i think as jonathan Hay pointed out it's good that we need both you know it's, it's, it's good that you know that the, the right the conservatives get in the Repub- you know as in the republicans get in for a certain amount of time and kind of try and uh, you know make maintain order and structure and then they give way to the liberals who come in and try and kick everything down and everybody gets a turn and we end up <laughs> hopefully roughly going in the right direction in a you know kind of very general way but also it's just the idea of it's kind of self-reinforcing so i mean my for my own personal you know my own personality my own kind of struggles on a daily basis you know i, I really struggle to make friends I'm, I'm quite an isolated lonely person and you know that creates a general mindset of 
I don't really want when I'm going out on the street. I don't really want people to talk to me. I don't, you know, <laughs> if people are kind of friendly to me in a in a store, I kind of I shrink back from that. And because they can read that on my face, then the response I get from people when I'm meeting them is generally mistrustful and hostile. And uh, and so it reinforces that idea that the world is a kind of scary place and you don't really want to hang out with people because they're scary. And I only really noticed this, um, you know, since, when I, since I married my wife and we'd be out in certain situations and, I, and I'd have an interaction with somebody. And they'd go, and I'd and, and it would go badly. And I'd say to myself, oh "My God, you know that person was so rude." And they were like, "Well, they were, she was like, well, they were reacting to you. You know, it was you that were was being rude first, and then they were rude back." And so, you know, you can see how I, that's invisible to me. I didn't think I was being rude. And it's the same. It's just that idea that you know we we create the worlds that we live in mm-hmm. by the kind of implicit beliefs that we have. It's self reinforcing, and and I think it's very true of irrational beliefs as well. Is that is that you know the more we embrace certain mindsets the more those mindsets will feel true and to kind of inverted commas prove themselves to be true right all right well let me let me end this with with one sort of really bizarro question and that is um and and obviously i could talk about this for 17 days straight but um <laughs> when the uh okay so thanks to social media we 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 find ourselves uh either involved in arguments or spectating on arguments about things like climate change and gun control and gay marriage and yada, yada, all these wedge issues. And why do you think facts don't work on people? Okay. I, I'll try and answer this as briefly as possible, but I, I, I tell a story in, in the book about this guy who's a climate change denier and his name's, and his name's uh, Lord Christopher Monckton and he's a British aristocrat <laughs> and he's a big hit on the Tea Party movement in the States. He was a former advisor to Margaret Thatcher, who was basically our Reagan in the 80s. Very right-wing guy. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the, I got to the point in the book when I interviewed Monckton where I began to realize that, you know, our, our, talking about science is kind of pointless, actually, digging into the facts digging into the kind of the rights and wrongs of the certain facts. And what you need to do is find out how somebody experiences the world. In other words, find out their hero making narrative. What is the story that their brain is telling them? And so I just sat down with uh, Lord Monkton and I just told him, tell me a story, you know, what, tell me about your life, your heroes and villains. And he said, well, um, I was born, I went to, you know, I was born to exceptional parents. He said, of course, he's a lord. So he was born into extremely wealthy aristocracy. He went to school, Harrow school, very posh school, um, a, a time when the British Empire was still a thing. And uh, he said that he, he's very proudly told me that his school song was from Harrow School to Rise and Rule. I mean, they were literally brought up to believe that they were going to be the masters of the universe. And then the Second World War happened. And what happened was that um, in fighting the Second World War, uh, Britain lost, you know, went to, it cost us a fortune. It, it broke the country. I mean, this is actually true. I and mean, we had to go to America, to the US, kind of cap in hand afterwards, and ask for kind of this massive loan of money just um, just to survive because defending Europe basically, you know, it, it destroyed us for, for decades. And uh, but so this is where Lord Monckton's story kicks in. And so one of the one of the, one of the things that main things we were wanting to pay for was the welfare state, you know, so it's social security, na- national insurance, uh, this kind of thing, which is obviously a, a left wing um, idea. Mm-hmm. And so he blames the left. It's the, it's the left's fault that, 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 that we lost our British Empire, which was so fabulous and marvellous for the world. And then we went into the Cold War, and the communists came along. And of course, the communists are also on the left. They're very jealous of the people, the capitalists. And because they're so jealous, they want to destroy 
capitalism. That's simply the reason. It's not because they want social justice. It's not because they don't want inequality. It's because they're jealous and they want to destroy capitalism. Uh, there are two ways they did this. The first was by um, organising in secret all the, all the miner strikes that we had in the UK, which because uh, they wanted to destroy our energy infrastructure. Um, and the other way was by uh, concocting this alliance of scientists and atheists that would spread misinformation um, uh, about the environment and about the world in such a way that it would cost industry and business, you know, crazy amounts of money and it would basically fall to pieces. And so they came up with all these lies about, uh, for, you know, about um, the effects of fertilizers, pesticides, all these lies about um, the hole in the ozone layer, climate change. And he said, even though the Berlin Wall has now fallen and communism is now over, the UN and, the, uh, and all the other uh, international institutions who are trying to fight climate change, he said they're still fighting from the KGB playbook. And the reason they're doing that is because, there's a, because they want to take over the world. He literally believes the United <laughs> Nations has a secret plan to take over the world. And Lord Monckton is one of these, he's a plucky David fighting Goliath, going around the world, fighting all this skepticism he's getting, fighting all the people making fun of him and, you know, flying the flag for truth and justice. And that is that climate change is a completely harmless uh, phenomena. That's why he believes in climate change. Now, I could have sat down with him for two hours and talked about the hockey stick graph and this paper and that paper and, you know, and run with this complete illusion that the reason Lord Monckton believes that climate, climate change isn't a problem is to do with anything like facts or rationality. Why he believes in climate change, why he believes what he does about climate change is because it's completely essential to his sense of self and who he is. Mm -hmm. You know, it's only when you take a step back and look at somebody's entire story of their life, the, the, uh, the way they understand the world and their place within it and their fights and struggles, it's only then that you can actually see why they believe what they believe and why facts don't work. Because, you know, in the face of that, that story in his head, that incredible, colourful, emotional James Bond story that he, that he lives in the middle of, you know, some paper coming out isn't going to change that. Some guy on MSNBC saying 97% of scientists think climate change is a real thing, that's not going to change that. Nothing's going to change that. No fact is going to change that because if it was to change, his entire sense of self would fall to pieces. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's an extreme example. And, there, you know, the book's full of extreme examples simply because they're easier to talk about and explain. You know, the bigger the light and the bigger the shadow. But, you know, we're all Lord Monkton to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. You know, we all have these passionate beliefs that we believe passionately because they nourish and enrich our sense of who we are, our sense of ourselves as good people fighting a noble fight in the world. And, you know, that's, that's what we have to be suspicious of. I know. And you, and you do a great job at showing in the book that when you talk about the science of it and the neuroscience and the, the psychology of our personal narratives and you call it, you know, the hero maker, our brain is a hero maker. Um, yeah. You, you describe um, when people get in these arguments where we're trying to make the other person see things, not our way. We want to, we, you, we try to make people change their minds to not think the way they think anymore. And you call you say that it has an, an essential violence to it, that it's uh, it's like higher than evangelism. And uh, it really made me think back of it. Like that's why I've abandoned doing, I, I try to not mention, you know, I try not to uh, attack anyone on social media more. I only, I try, I have like a, a this Bushido code thing of saying, yeah. of I'm only going to talk about things that I love and tell people about things that I like instead of this other thing around. Because I don't, not necessarily because I don't have things that I, I disagree with or want to 
I want to attack things that are that I don't like is that I know that I'm going to get in that mode where facts won't work on me and I will and they won't work exactly. on, the, on, the, on the other person either. Yeah. And neither one of us is willing just to say, well, I believe this, I have an opinion, but you know, maybe it's wrong, but I don't know. But, um. Yeah, that's it. I mean, and it's just that simple thought experiment, which kind of occurred to me at the very beginning of it all. And that's that, you know, I, I, I know logically that I'm not right about everything. You know, I can't be, I can't, you know, because if I, if I, if I'm right about everything, <laughs> it means that I'm unique in the world. Like I'm the best person in the world. <laughs> if I'm literally right about everything. So, okay, I can accept that I'm wrong about probably quite a lot of but then when I interrogate in detail, what am I wrong about? I just discount them all. Well, I'm not wrong about this. I'm not wrong about that. I'm definitely not wrong about that. You know, it's impossible for us to see our own biases and prejudices. You know, we're all biased and prejudices, but we're all basically incapable of, of understanding what they are. So and as soon as you understand that, it kind of requires this humility, which you're describing, and a kind of reluctance. It's almost, in a way... I almost want to say cowardly, you know, you don't, I don't, you know, I, and it's probably had a negative effect on me as a journalist because when I'm writing pieces now, I'm very reluctant to have that kind of strident viewpoint, which is going to get page views and, you know, mm. people tweeting about my piece because I just think, well, what if I'm wrong about this? I could be wrong about this. And you almost find yourself kind of, uh, you know, uh, paralyzed by this, by, 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 by this notion of, God, you know, I, no matter how strongly I, th- I feel about this, I don't want to have it published in this, in, you know, national newspaper because, <laughs> you know, what if I'm wrong? So, I, you know, it's, it's it's a kind of very weird place to be, but I oh, completely admire your, <laughs> your 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 position. Oh no, it's <laughs> I don't I fail a lot, but I <laughs> I that's like I had to actually say to myself, this is something that I do now. This is like a code of life. Only talk about things you like. Do not. Do not get it because the worst thing in the world is go to is on a Facebook page is is on your Facebook page seeing all these people uh, a nonstop stream of I hate this I hate this I hate this and it's a lot of it is yeah. just tribal trying to get people in your show proving that you're in their in group and stuff and I'm like yeah I don't want to I just I I just no. I just can't because yeah. I'm bad at it I'm I'm the kind of person yeah. that will think about it for four or five days I'll be in the shower and I'll be like okay yeah. no 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 okay well this is how actually I can get them yeah. this is how I will get them this is exactly how I you know. And it's just, yeah, that's uh, it. That's it. It becomes completely obsessive. And if you're, I mean, as you are, I'm sure, I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're self-employed writers. If you get into an argument on Twitter, which thankfully doesn't have to be much because I just don't engage with it very much for these reasons. But if you, if I get into an argument on Twitter, that's me gone for the day because I can't think about anything else. Right, exactly. And, it, and, 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 and Twitter is so bad for these things because it, it, it presses all those buttons. I mean, the first thing about Twitter is that every, um, exchange is public and not only is it public it's public to the people that you admire most they all can see it <laughs> right it has 140 characters so you can't do those really absolutely essential good manner bits right you know, right I hate to disagree i'm sorry i see what you're saying but you can't do any of that stuff so it's almost custom designed to create these massive rows <laughs> with people that probably wouldn't hopefully wouldn't happen if you were sober and you met them in a you know, under a normal under normal circumstances, it's a. Ter- I mean, social media is 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 is, is a, It's not encouraging to kind of reasonable <laughs> or rational debate at all. Well, look, uh, I'm, thank you for letting me keep you for a, a longer than I said I would uh, do this for. But um, and I could talk about this forever. But I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, if people want to find you, uh, want to keep up with your work, how is what is the easiest way to do that? 
Well, um, uh, my Twitter is just W Store W S T O R, and uh, and I generally put links to all my kind of latest stories on my website, which is just willstore dot com. So very simple. Mm-hmm. And what are you working on um, next? Well, well, I'm actually uh, I'm about to start on the next book, which is going to be about the self. So that's kind of daunting and a bit scary, <laughs> but you know. Uh, well, I look for I look forward to. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I look forward to it. Um, this really is, uh, to me, the best book that has been written so far about these topics um, because it will, if you're the kind of person who buys these books, it will challenge you in a way that you did not expect to be challenged. And I think it will, um, I think it will expand your worldview in a way that we all needed expanded. So I really, I really thank you for writing the book. Oh, no. Uh, thank you for your comments, really. They mean an awful lot. Uh, thanks so much, ma'am. Cheers. That is it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about today, you can find all that at youarenotsosmart.com. In addition to that, you can find all the back episodes, but you can also find those on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. The opening music, that's Clash by Caravan Palace. For more great podcasts like this one, go to boingboingpodcast.net. To follow us on social media, it's at NotSmartBlog, and I am at David McRaney, and on Facebook, it's just slash you are not so smart. And if you'd like to support this show, just pitch in a little bit of money and help get the show bigger and better. Also, you get the show without any advertising. Just go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America. 